Amen. You may be seated at this time. Uh, This morning, um, the time of teaching will be a little bit shorter because we have the privilege of uh, baptizing uh, two wonderful people of our church, um, Mason, who I think is with the kids right now, and then uh, a good friend of mine, Ryan Horn, who is a really cool guy. So I'm really excited about that this morning. Um, And as we begin today, uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, starting in verse 14 and going through the end of the chapter. Um, I want to talk about love, and I think we like talking about love. Uh, I think in our world today, in our culture, there's different levels of love, and maybe you've been there, or maybe you've not been there ever. Um, there's, a, there's a phase in getting to know somebody, and at least this is what we younger people refer to it as, like we're talking, right? That's the beginning stage of a relationship, we're talking, right? And then when it becomes apparent that the two people who are talking want to pursue a relationship farther, they move into the like stage, right? This is where like, I like you, and you like me, and that's how we express our affection to one another. We say, I like you, and they say, well, I like you, you know? And when you get to be in your 20s, it's kind of weird to be using that kind of language, I like you. It feels like you're on the playground in kindergarten, right? But that's the stage that you're at, right? Because you like each other, and you don't quite yet love each other. And we have this idea that once you drop the big L word, the big love word, that's a really big deal. And I always, you know, and we make it such a, a big passage in the relationship. And I still remember exactly where I was at when I told my wife that I loved her for the very first time. We were in Carabas, and it was February 15th, a few years back. I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> which year it was, but February 15th, a few years back, celebrating Valentine's Day. And I had this really cool idea to tell that I loved her by writing it in the Valentine's card that I gave her that year. And so that way, after I told her I loved her via card for the first time, we would always have it in writing as like this memory of like the first time I said, I love you, right? And, and looking back, I wonder, um, at that point in our relationship, if I really if I really did love her, because I think sometimes we we use the word love, and what it really means is I feel very emotionally strong towards you, right? But it really all depends upon your definition of love, doesn't it? And I think in our world today, we think that love just means I really like you a lot, or maybe I'm like obsessed by you or something. I mean, we, we use love to mean like an emotional feeling, but I think that when you go to scripture, because I've always wondered, what does it really mean? At the, at the core of love, what does it really mean to love somebody? And I think Paul gives us a little bit of insight into that this morning. And I'm going to make this argument today, that, that this is truly what love is in terms of the way, that, the way that Christ demonstrated love. Love, I think, comes down to two things. If you really love somebody, number one, if you love somebody, you love them to the point of prayer, that you pray for them. And number two, when you really love somebody, you love them even to the point of death. And you might say, well, that's pretty intense because I love people and I don't do either of of those two things for them. And I want to examine if sometimes we devalue what it really means to love. And I want to read something this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to make the argument that Paul loves this church. And that what Paul says is that in the Christian life, what it means to love somebody is to love them to the point that you pray for them because you care so much about them and you are willing to give your life for them. Stand with me this morning as we read Ephesians chapter 3 together, starting in verse 14. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen. 
Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Paul is, is writing to a church that he loves and concluding some statements that he's made prior to them. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated at this time. I love how Paul, uh, in the midst of um, <clears throat> chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians, kind of walking through the cosmic reality of what God is doing. And so he talks about what Jesus is doing in terms of the spiritual reality. And then starting in chapter 4, he begins to talk a little bit more about the practical things like unity in the church, family, marriage, work, all those types of things. But he closes this section by really just kind of praying for the church and pastoring them and, and loving on them. And I think it's important to see that Paul prays here because as we begin to examine this text, um, I mean, the, there's not one key thesis maybe that you could pull out of this text. I think he's really just praying and loving on them. I think when we pray to God, there's not always one main point we're trying to make him. We're really just connecting with God. But I think one of the things that we, we can get out of this is that ultimately, number one, love, le- love leads to prayer. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So Paul is literally bending his knees in prayer. And I literally think Paul means he is, when he prays, bending his knees. And one of the things I've found that when I try to pray, um, my, my posture, my spiritual posture, is sometimes impacted by my physical posture. And what I mean by that is it's really hard for me if I'm like sitting on the couch with the TV on, the Cheetos on my belly, the Cheeto puffs, right? And, you know, a magazine in my hand. It's really hard in that instance to pray, right? It's hard to, to be so lackadaisical and then act like I'm talking to the creator of the universe. Maybe you're a lot better than that. Maybe your prayers are real, prayers are real laid back. And it's also hard for me to pray in the car. A lot of people say they do that. And that's so hard for me because I'm already a really bad driver. And so, like, if I start, like, engaging with the creator of the universe as well as driving, then we're all in trouble, Right? And so for me, literally, I think Paul says he's bending his knees. Like this place that he is under house arrest, I really believe what he means is I'm on my knees in this place where I am locked up and I am praying for you, the church. A church that he planted, a church that he loves. He begins praying for the church and I believe he's praying for them ultimately at the core because Paul loves this church. My question to, to you all this morning is, is do, we, do we pray for our church? And, and do we pray for the people that we love? And I know we're always looking for ways that we can love people and the ways that we can demonstrate that. And can I just say that the best thing you can do to love somebody is honestly to pray for them. 
like if God is really in control of everything, then going to God on somebody's behalf and begging God to bless somebody or to be with them or to comfort them is really the best thing you can do. Uh, I had a really cool moment this week. Um, every Wednesday, some of the young guys in the church, we gather in my office and we just kind of read the Bible together. We pray together. We talk about life and what's going well and, you know, the parts of our life that are just a complete train wreck, you know. Uh, it's a really, really cool time. And we had a really cool moment this past week where we were kind of closing down. It's about six or seven of us. And we really just went around and said, look, this is the area in my life that I need prayer. And I cannot tell you how special it is to look these guys in the eye who I'm walking with in this life and to know the areas that they're struggling with. And it's funny, when I begin to to pray for them, I find myself loving them more and I become more invested in their life and I wanna know how it's going. I wanna know if God's answering my prayer that I'm praying to give you whether it's motivation or or strength in your prayer life or maybe you need faith or or, or whatever you need. I mean, we, we were literally praying as the church and it was so cool to be a part of that. Um, I'll never forget that when I first became the pastor about a year ago, it was a lot of responsibility, a big change in my life. And it was before one of the first Sunday mornings. I mean, it might have been my first Sunday as the pastor. And I'm sitting in my office. I'm like all nervous, right? I, I can't eat any food because I can't keep it down. A lot's going on. It, it's kind of crazy. And Amy Garner, who many of you know, she's a wonderful person in our church, literally walks into my office and says, can I pray for you? And I don't know if she was led by the Spirit to do that or if she could just see me trembling. But she walked in and said, can I pray for you? And she, she put her hand on my shoulder and she prayed for me. And I will never forget that. If you want to love somebody, yeah, you can wait till they need you to help them move. That's a good way to express love, right? You can do practical. You can fix their, something in their bathroom when it breaks or bring them a meal. But when you walk up to someone and say, can I pray for you? Like Paul prays for this church. It's the best way we love each other. I mean, you know, Joe Stone in our church has a wonderful prayer ministry where literally every day she's email, emailing prayer requests out about things and needs within our church. And you get to pray with people and to know what's going on in their life. I mean, there is so much love that is cultivated in a church when you pray for each other. And, and the reason why we pray ultimately is because of what Paul says. He says, out of the riches of God's glory that he might grant you the ability to be strengthened. And I love this because Paul realizes when we pray to God, we pray to a God who is strong and who owns everything. And sometimes I believe that we let the humility and the meekness of Jesus during his earthly ministry affect the way that we see God the Father. We see Jesus as this person who was willingly killed on the cross and paid for our sins and he would, he would let people push him around just because he was paying for our sins. And we begin to let that image of a, of a lowly, humble servant kind of impact the way we see God the Father. And while God is a humble God, he's also a powerful God. And when you pray to God, you're praying to the God that owns the weather. And he owns the money. And he owns all of the people. He owns the earth. He owns every single circumstance in this world. And when you pray to God, you're praying to the one who owns everything. And sometimes we pray just like we're throwing up something and, well, maybe it'll stick. I remember when I was in college, I, I befriended the president of the university I was going to. I befriended his son. And when you are really good friends with the son of the president of a university, there are so many perks that come with it. I remember once we were going to watch Monday Night Football together. And we were all texting like, hey, so where are we going to watch it, you know? And he's in this group text message with us. And he says, hey, we could watch it at my house, you know? To which one of my friends responds, dot, 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 you mean the president's mansion? And then he responded, dot, 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 
AKA my house. And so we got to watch Monday Night Football on like the greatest, I don't even think these TVs are released to the public. It was like this huge TV, but it was like super nice. It's like technology that, that, that only like the, the CIA has or something. And we, we roll in and there's like a maid who's making us all of our food and our drinks and bringing them to us. And she's like, make, like, she's like mixing like cherry Coke with lime. I mean, it's just like whatever you want. You could literally say anything and she will literally bring forth whatever you want. And it was most amazing. It was so much better than watching it in a dorm with like, you know, dirty underwear on the couch and that nasty smell and, you know, like, like rotten cheese in the fridge and like that's all that's in the fridge. And there's a, a comforting feeling when, and also was really cool, was he was actually teaching one of my classes at the time, right? And so it was just this comforting feeling that I was connected and close to the president. And that's how Paul prays to God. And I would ask that you, you pray for me as your pastor, and, and I would ask that I pray for, for you, but not in like this, I hope this works, but I ask that you pray for me knowing that God owns absolutely everything. And so what happens when we pray for other people? When you pray for people, you begin to love them more. I believe part of Paul's love for these people is not just because of the connection he has with them, but because of, of, of the prayer that he has for them. And if God's word is not enough to, to make you pray, um, I hope this might help just a little bit. Uh, has anyone ever heard of something called the anterior cingulate? Raise your hand. Anterior cingulate. I've, I expected that. I got a picture of the, the anterior cingulate up here. Okay. It's the best picture I can find on Google. So, But this is the anterior cingulate, the orange part. And the anterior cingulate is a part of your brain that they've known about for a long time. It's kind of right here in the sideburn area of your, of your brain. And what the anterior cingulate is, is it's in charge of basically um, helping you feel feelings of compassion and empathy and love. And whenever you're really focused on somebody outside of yourself, they say that your anterior cingulate is like the most active part of your brain. And they've known that for a while. But literally within the, the past two years, and I would challenge you to look this up. It's super cool. It's anterior with an A, cingulate with a C. What they have begun to find is uh, that prayer, actual religious prayer, has a huge impact on your anterior cingulate. And they have proven scientifically that when you pray, you not only become less stressed, but you, it literally helps you to begin to love somebody and feel affection for them, right? It's hard sometimes to say, well, I want to feel more compassionate towards you, so I'm going to, to do that. You can't just speak that oftentimes. But when you pray, it's scientifically proven to make you care about whatever you're praying about that much more. But wait, there's more. There's another part of your brain called the amygdala. Okay, I'm, I'm messing this up, right? But it's the amygdala. And the amygdala is the part of your brain that manages the anxiety and the stress and the worry. That, that part of my brain that seems to happen a lot more often than I would like, right? Or get activated a lot more often. The amygdala, they say, that whenever somebody prays, it is scientifically proven that as you pray and as the anterior cingulate becomes more and more active and becomes more and more strengthened, that the amygdala is slowly quieted down. Prayer is proven to literally guard your 
mind scientifically, and they've done this all within the past two years. And I want to read you something that gave me goosebumps this week when I read this. It's one of my favorite verses, and I, it kept coming to my mind as I was reading this research, okay? It says in Philippians 4, chapter 6, this is Paul, the same guy writing Ephesians, who's praying for these people and loving on them. He writes this in Philippians 4, chapter 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So don't be anxious, but let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing about something 2,000 years ago of which science is just now catching up to. Prayer impacts who you love. And when we're called to love people, it's, it's always easier said than done. And so let me give you some help. I'm, just, I'm not just going to tell you to love people. I'm going to say, look, if you're having trouble loving somebody, if you pray for them every day for a week, it will change your entire perspective on that person, on that situation, on that thing that, that bothers you. Prayer changes who you love. And so as we pray, we find that love will increase in us, and it will increase beyond our comprehension, which is obviously a, a great thing. But then Paul says this in verse 17. He says this, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know that the love of God, that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All right, now I'm gonna close it here. I need you to stay with me because this can get kind of confusing, but I'm, I'm gonna walk you through it. Paul says this interesting statement that is not just a random statement in his theology. He says that love surpasses knowledge. And this isn't just a random prayer, something that he says. Literally, this is an idea that Paul visits in the scripture over and over again. He says in Philippians 4, 7, which we just read, he said, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, it surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this is what I need you to know this morning. The love of God and God's gifts are not bound by your ability to understand them. God's gifts and God's peace is not bound by your ability to comprehend it. Because what we always say is, I want to understand what God's doing. I want to understand kind of where it's at. I want to understand what he's doing in my life. I don't get it. I want peace. I want love. I want to understand. But if we really were granted that wish, wouldn't that mean that his love and his peace in our life would be limited? If we are finite human beings, if we are limited in our understanding, wouldn't the goodness of what God is doing in our life be limited if we could perceive it. But Paul says that the love of Christ, it surpasses knowledge. Because in Paul's day, the Greeks and the Romans, there was a lot of knowledge. It was supposedly the, the smartest society to that date in history. And it was all about understanding God. And it was all about knowing it and, and rationally explaining it. All of which are great things. But Paul says it's even better than that. Paul says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Do you believe this morning 
that every time you pray, that in the end, it will be better than what you're asking. Because if you don't, that is where stress begins to creep in. And when, when we don't pray, and when we don't pray with expectancy that God is going to bless us, what we're really doing is letting all of the other voices in our head speak instead of God's voice. When we don't pray, what we're really doing is we're letting that anxious voice control us. We're letting that negative voice control us. We're letting that person that doesn't like us and who's always giving us a hard time, we're letting their voice be louder than the voice of God in our life. But when we begin to pray, and when we begin to love people through prayer, what we find is that our love surpasses knowledge. And let me tell you why. Because knowledge is not the essence of who God is. Love surpasses knowledge because God is literally love. All of the wisdom in the world is contained within Jesus. All of the knowledge, all of the wisdom. But the core essence of who God is, is ultimately love. And this is so important because this is the one thing that distinguishes the Christian faith from every other thought in the world. In 1 John chapter 4, it says this, and then I want to explain what that means. Uh, the, the disciple John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is not knowledge. God contains all the knowledge. But God is ultimately love. And this is the one thing, the, the, the singular essence that separates us from everybody else. Because you have religions such as Judaism and, and Islam, where literally the essence of everything is law. Because there is no grace, and you are judged based upon your works. There's commandments, and there's a law, and if you can do enough good stuff, then you're good. But if you do enough bad stuff, then you're condemned, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's all about your actions. And so the essence of those religions is works and what you do. But the problem is, we make tons of mistakes. And then you have modern thought, like secularism, and you have humanism, and you have uh, more Eastern religions like Hinduism. And, and, and what they believe the essence of everything is, they believe God is ultimately wisdom and enlightenment. And they believe the problem in the world is that we need more education. You ever heard that? Somebody says something inappropriate, they get sent to sensitivity training, and we just assume, well, they wouldn't be such an idiot if someone would just sit down and tell them all the right information. The essence of God at the core is not the right information. It's not doing the right stuff. God is love. And this love is demonstrated when you were willing to give up yourself for somebody else and their benefit. See, love surpasses knowledge, Paul says. Love carries us beyond knowledge. You know, it's funny, you go to school your whole life and they all teach you how to be smart, right? They teach you math, they teach you science, but there's like never a class that teaches you how to love. Have you ever found that interesting? They'll teach you like how to um, divide and they'll teach you the history of the 1600s and romanticism but they don't teach you how to have a good marriage. They don't teach you how to love your kids. 
because we live in a world where we worship knowledge and information. And what we can begin to do is translate this to our faith, and we begin saying things like, I want to go deeper. I want to learn more. I want to know the key themes in the book of Isaiah. And, and really what God wants from us ultimately is to love the shut-in, is to love our wife, our husband, our kids, to love our church, to pray for people, to be self-sacrificial. There's no going deeper in the Christian life without growing in love. That's the whole point of 1 John. You can't know God if you don't love. And so the Christian life is not about getting the right information. It's about literally in your actions and in your deeds, loving people. And that's why Paul says that love ultimately surpasses knowledge. And I'll close with this. So we said the two main things when it comes to loving somebody is, is you pray for them and you're willing to die for them. And let me explain why that, why that fits in. I believe at the core of our existence, what we really want deep down is we want to have a relationship with somebody who's willing to die for us. Jesus said that there's no greater way to demonstrate your love for somebody than to be willing to give your life for them. We don't want somebody who's necessarily really smart. We don't want someone to hold us to a bunch of rules. What we really want at the core of our existence is somebody who is willing to die for us. Every person in this room, if we took a poll, you would say, yes, I would love for somebody to die for me. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm seeking in a relationship is somebody willing to die for me. And maybe you've been in a relationship with somebody who said they loved you and they said all the right things, but they did all of the wrong things. And they said they loved you and they said they cared about you and they said that they would be there for you, but that was just until somebody better came along. And then they just transferred their devotion from you to this new person and now they're gonna die for this other person because they love them so much. At the core, what we want is somebody to die for us. And let me just close right here with a couple little facts that I think will put this into perspective. If we can agree that true love, like you know you love somebody at the point that you're willing to die for them, you're willing to give up your life that they might benefit, if, if we can agree on that, then let me just throw this your way. Muhammad did not die for his people, the founder of Islam. Joseph Smith did not die for his people, the founder of Mormonism. Buddha did not die for you, didn't even claim to. That atheist professor who confuses you, they didn't die for you, and they're not going to die for you. That blogger who writes all of that stuff that confuses you of all religions are the same, it's all this, they give you all these things, they give you all of this knowledge. They didn't die for you, and they won't die for you. You see, there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom and eloquent words given by those people, but there is no death. But Jesus died for you. It's what he said. It's what he did. And even if you don't believe him, in his mind, that's what he did. He died for you. And that's why Paul says that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, we were sinful and we were separated from God. If we've done one sin, that means we're, we're separated from him because he's perfect. But in Romans 5.1, it says that but God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the penalty of sin is death. Somebody had to die. And when Christ died in your place for your sins on the cross, what he was doing is saying, I'm not just an enlightened teacher. I'm somebody who loves you. And I want to challenge you this morning, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, I want to challenge you to follow that guy. I want to challenge you to marry people who are willing to die for you, to have friends with people who are willing to die for you. And I want to encourage you to give your life not to a smart, intellectual, knowledge-filled person, but to give your life to Jesus who died for you. I want to challenge you to walk into this love that Paul says surpasses knowledge. I'm going to invite Justin Fleming up here real quick to to close our time in prayer. And uh, the same way that Paul prayed for the church. I'm just going to ask Justin to come up here and to to pray for our church. Uh, Justin's going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing a song together as the church, and then we're going to get to partake um, in baptism, and uh, we're going to be dismissed after that. So would you bow your heads as Justin leads us in prayer?